Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We're going to look at love today and the role it plays in caring. The role it plays in caring. If you're um, following us on the notes, it's your first line there. So one of the things that we're trying to do here at RCC is we're trying to present to you what the gospel says first and foremost. And we're doing our best to remove our opinion because what we want to present to you is the truth. We care about you and bringing you the truth. See, Jesus Christ himself is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And since uh, he is the truth and his word is true, it is 100% true. Since his word is true and he is truth, we're trying to present you the truth and not just a good little motivational talk that we slap a scripture on so we kind of make it appropriate for a weekend or a Sunday service. We want to make sure that we're encouraging you to pursue truth. And if we, if we effectively communicate the truth of God's word and scripture to you and you consume God's word yourself, then you're going to find what you're looking for. And that is the truth. <clears throat> um, one of the reasons that, we're, that I want to kind of address this up at the front tonight is because one of the, the scriptures that we're going to use here at the beginning of the message is one that can often be misinterpreted by the American church. Our American church has, has done us kind of a disservice by taking the focus of, of the scripture off of Jesus and putting it on us. And here's what I mean. The gospel story is not about us. It is about Jesus. The gospel story is not about us. It's about Jesus. Our goal as disciples of Christ is not to live as the star of our own life movie, but to play a supporting role in the eternal story of Almighty God. When He is no longer the focus of the gospel, when He is no longer the focus of how we read Scripture, and when He is not the center and everything revolves around Him, and we replace that with us, and we we become this self-focused, kind of self-fulfilling, put-the-spotlight-on-me kind of gospel, What happens is we start to read scriptures in a way that would benefit us, that would tell me what I get. And the reason I want to draw this comparison right now, and uh, because we're going to read this this verse in 1 Peter 5 here in just a second, and you're going to see that the focus um, when we have a me-centered gospel is on part of the verse. And when we correctly have a God-centered gospel, when the story is about Him, it changes the paradigm and our perspective and what we see. So let's read this verse real quick. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Most of the time, uh, especially recently, like in the last 10 years or so, when I hear this message preached, typically the focus is on two parts of that. God's going to exalt you at the proper time, so cast all your care on him. And it's been, and that kind of gives us the impression 
that if we um, humble ourselves and we're a nice person, God is going to exalt you, which in our culture means wealth and fame and prosperity. And you, um, you come to Jesus. He's going to take all your troubles, all your worries, and all your anxiety away. Look at everything you get when you give your life to Jesus. It's not only the cross. He's got all these little goodies. He's got all these little presents and these packages he's wanting to give to you. And you just need to come to him. And if you do what he says, man, he is going to do all that stuff for you. And that is not the message of the gospel. When we change the lens and the focus off of, oh yeah, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna get stuff, or I'm going to be, you know, I'm gonna be exalted at the proper time, or the pro- proper time, and I'm gonna cast all my cares on him, so I'm not gonna have any worries. When we take it off of the the me-centered approach, and look at the gospel for what it really is, the story about Christ the focus of the scripture changes. It changes instead of what do I get, when do I get to be exalted to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And there are four words at the end of that passage that as I was getting ready and studying this week, I had to literally stop for a second and push back from the table because it just blew my mind. And those last four words of that passage are he being God, he cares for you. I'm going to say that again. God cares for you. None of the world's religions can make that statement. How does an idol made of wood or plastic or stone care for you? How does any inanimate object that has been formed by the hands of man, how does it care for you? It doesn't. The false gods from other religions are distant, and they demand compliance. They are not personal, nor do they care for the needs of their followers. They are religions based on fear and not a loving, caring relationship with the God of the universe. As I was doing my study this week, I ran across the Kaufman commentary on the Old and New Testament that, is, uh, that gives a description of this particular passage of Scripture that we just read in First Peter. And I'm just going to read it because it, it summarizes it so well. The thought here in this verse contrasts the living and true God with the dumb idol gods of paganism who have no feeling, concern, or interest of any kind whatever in their worshipers. Even these pagan god, gods and goddesses, which were supposed to be more glorious, were always represented as being far off from their devotees and having no care whatever for them. It is one of the most glorious teachings of the Bible that God, yes, the Almighty God loves His children, is concerned and interested in their welfare and His eyes are always upon his beloved. Even David recognizes this truth in the Old Testament when he, when he wrote Psalms 40, verses 16 through 17. Let all those who seek you, God, rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help 
and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God. As a believer in Christ, I want you to remember something. God sees you. God knows where you are. He understands the situation that you're in right now. And God thinks about you. God loves and cares for you. I just want to stop for a second. And wherever you are, if you're listening to this right now on the live stream or later, if it's appropriate for you, just stop for a second. Let the truth and the reality of that sink into you. That God cares about you. You may even want to say it a little bit differently out of your mouth right now. God cares about me. We're really good at telling people, yes, God loves everybody. God, God um, uh, he wants everybody to come to him. He loves all, all his people. Yes, and it becomes like this mass gathering. And yes, he does love that way. But he also, we just saw in this scripture, he cares about you. He cares about me. There's no reason for a God to care about imperfect sinners other than that he is love and he knows the best place for us is in relationship with him there is no better place for us as believers or as people to be than right next to the one who created us who can heal us who can fix us who cares about you. I'm hoping that as you're taking a few moments that this would sink in. The, it, it, when I sat there today and was, or the, this weekend and was going through some of this, it just blew my mind. An all, all self-sustaining, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God who was before time and will be after time, who had not a beginning or an end, who created everything that we see, cares about you. He cares about you. With that reality fresh in our mind and our heart, let us now look at how we are to be a reflection of that caring that we don't deserve to other people and to the world. So if you're following along in your notes, number one, love does not boast. Love does not boast. That word boast in the original language is defined as a self-display. We see a lot of that, especially in our culture right now, a self-display, look at me. Employing rhetorical embellishments and enthusiastically praising oneself excessively. That is a brilliant definition of the word boast. One I wouldn't have come up with, but when I read that, I went, oh, exactly. Employing rhetorical embellishments and enthusiastically praising oneself excessively. Why? 
does it even need to say love does not boast because there is a part of us that wants to puff up. There's part of us that wants to rise and and boast about the things that we've accomplished. But if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a believer in Christ, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 has a message for us. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ so we can do the good things He planned in us and for us long ago. That, that me-focused gospel could look at that and go, there's a bunch of good stuff that He has planned for us and we're going to go get it. No. It ignores all of the rest of the context of the Scripture and we put, we put our focus on God as the center of the story, we see that it is a message of grace. We have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to embellish. There's no puffing up for us. There's no look at me for us as believers in Christ. Because when we boast, we self-display. And in doing so, we take credit for God's grace to us. When we try to present the idea that we're good and we followed all the rules and we did all the stuff that Jesus wanted and so, yes, I deserve what I get from Him, we are completely outside of the realm of Scripture. How do I know? Because I used to be that way. I used to look at it very much that way until God graciously and lovingly corrected that lens and put the focus back on Him. There is nothing we can boast of. When we display rhetorical embellishments, we're being dishonest about our own strengths and abilities. When we praise ourselves excessively, we wander into the area of self-worship, which is actually idolatry. It's idolatry. If we boast, we do many things, but I want to talk about two of them real quick. Letter A on your notes is this. We actually disregard God's love and care for us. We try to take credit for it, and in doing so, we disregard it. And B, we become blind to the love and care others need. When we boast, we are wanting attention from others instead of paying attention to others. I'm going to say that one more time. When we boast, we are wanting attention from others instead of paying attention to others. God created us, not ourselves. Hebrews makes that very clear. He's the master designer, therefore he gets all the credit and the glory. But if there is something inside you that goes, I just have to boast about something, you're in luck. Because the Bible gives us, as God's children, something we can boast about. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. This is what the Lord said. The wise man must not boast in his wisdom. The strong man must not boast in his strength. The wealthy man must not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. 
for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. How does boasting about God show love and care for others? Because we are telling them that we are incapable of saving ourselves and that God shows love and care for everyone who believes in Christ. One of the greatest things that we can do to care for others and let others know that God cares for them as well is to make sure that we're not trying to promote ourselves, but make sure that we're pointing all attention, all spotlight, all glory back to where it belongs to Yahweh, Almighty God, to Jesus, Yeshua, because He saved us. He saved us and not ourselves. It's one of the greatest things that we can do in showing care for others is letting them know where we received care and how they can receive it too. Love does not boast. Number two, love is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. That word arrogant in the original language is defined to inflate, to blow up, to puff up, make proud, to carry oneself in elevated regard, or to be proud. One of the, uh, the great scriptures that show us somebody in the Bible who was literally eaten up with pride is found in Isaiah. Now this is um, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. This is God speaking to a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was wildly wicked and and very prideful, very arrogant. He's speaking through Isaiah, and this is what he tells Nebuchadnezzar. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Woo, man, I don't know about you, but I can't even imagine being so far gone down the road with arrogance that I would say, I'm going to make myself like God like the Most High. This scripture is, um, is pointing to King Nebuchadnezzar. However, Old Testament prophets were known for prophesying something to a current event with a nod or a foreshadowing to something else. And many scholars see this scripture as a parallel reference to Nebuchadnezzar and to Lucifer, Satan. They see this as a, as a description because Nebuchadnezzar is so eaten up with pride, just like Lucifer, just like Satan, the enemy of God, was eaten up so much with pride before he was cast out of heaven that there is a wild similar parallel here between how both of them have acted. I will make myself like the Most High. Notice the heart of arrogance described And in Nebuchadnezzar and Lucifer in this passage, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like God. 
Nothing good is grown from the soil of pride. Why? Because the next line in your notes, all pride is rooted in evil. All pride is rooted in evil. Now, when I say pride, I don't mean like the kind that a parent has when they look at their child, when they accomplish something, when they put their mind to it, when they dedicated themselves, they, they studied real hard and did well on the test, they practiced real hard and did well in the game or whatever it was. You have a certain pride as a parent where you go, man, I'm proud of that boy. I'm proud of that girl. Man, I love them. I'm not talking about that pride. I'm talking about the one that is defined as arrogance. See, pride seeks to elevate itself and minimize others. Pride seeks to portray itself as more important than others. Pride seeks to glorify itself above showcasing others. And pride seeks to comfort itself above caring for others. You can kind of see the, the wickedness and the evil that is present in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar and in Satan and Lucifer in all of this activity, all of this perspective, all of this grimy, prideful arrogance that's inside of them. They want it. It's not love. It is pride. And now let's look at the heart of our Savior found in John 13, 12 through 17. After washing their feet, he, Jesus, put on his robe again and sat down and asked the disciples, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Look at the stark contrast between the goal of Lucifer, the enemy of God, and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's so similar to what we looked at before, the, 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 the falsehood of these inanimate objects who, of false religions and gods who don't care about you and God who sent His Son to die for you. He cares. This arrogance has no, no need or care for anybody else outside of what can be done for them or what can be gained for them, for their own self. But here Jesus shows us the epitome of humility. The arrogant are striving to be on top, to unseat the ruling power, and to elevate their own status among creation. But Jesus is kneeling on a dirty floor, washing the filthy feet of the very people He created, showing them true humility by serving. If God's heart is growing in me, my level of care for others will naturally increase through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
if you are if you are siding with your flesh, if you are choosing to operate that way, if you are giving in to arrogance, to pride, to to puffing up all of these things, the boasting, the the arrogance, if you are giving into that, you are too focused on yourself to even care about anyone else. And if you know anybody like that, or if you have been in that position before, someone who is arrogant, because I have, you will know that if you were to inspect your own heart, if that was you, I can tell you as someone who was there, love did not rule. But when love rules and we side with the Spirit of God and we are, we are uprooting the things that would choke out the Word of God from growing in us, the first fruit of the Spirit is love. And this characteristic of love is not arrogant will we'll begin to come out of us naturally because the Holy Spirit is inside of us. Number three, love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. This word insist in the original language is defined as to require, crave, or demand something from someone. Love does not require, crave, or demand its own way from other people. we see this very principle at work in Jesus. Matthew 16, verses 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Notice here that Jesus is not demanding compliance. He is saying, Do you want to be my disciple. I grew up in the old school Pentecostal church and they would hit you with all these statements, you know, like one of them I was thinking about during the prep this week is, you better get right or get left. And today's, you know, in today's vernacular, you'd be like, are you talking about like, you know, Democrat, Republican? Are you talking about like politics? No, they meant get your life right or you're gonna get left behind when the rapture comes, right? Like they hit you with a get right or get left and kind of mic drop moment and walk away. And leave you afraid, you know, as a little kid, like, you know, is he going to come tomorrow? And I'm not going to make it, you know. Almost kind of with a demanding tone. But Jesus simply says, if you want to be my disciple, give up your own way. Give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. See, love doesn't force itself to the front and run everyone else, run over everyone else to get its own way. It doesn't put these conditional requirements on somebody's like, you better do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and then I'll love you. No, that's not how love operates. Because love does not demand or insist on its own way. Matthew 26, 36 through 39. Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, 
and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. And here's the kicker. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. In this simple passage, Jesus gives us the highest example of this love characteristic by not pushing to get his own way. He loves and cares so much for the future of all humanity that he refuses to insist on his own way and does what is best for us. If that is my example, and we read earlier when Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples, he's saying, I have set this example before you to serve and care for the needs of other people. And then I look at this and go, Even he didn't insist on his own way. He did what is best for the other person because love cares. I find myself convicted in my own heart saying, am I doing that? Am I caring for the needs of others when it's convenient for me? When it doesn't get in my own way? Or am I caring for the needs of others and disregarding my own thought process, my own way, my own desire, have I put that aside in an effort to serve other people? See, a lot of people are scared of the word humility, but humility is simply this. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. We also find the same desire in, um, in, in the New Testament with Paul. And I'm, I want to first read um, Galatians 5, and it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And we're very familiar, if you've been in church for any length of time, with this passage. But we typically stop after reading that verse and don't continue on reading the verse that comes after it. So let's do that together. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, and gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. That's typically where we stop, but let's keep going. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. As believers in Christ, we often hear the phrase, we need to die to ourself. And there's a scripture that talks about dying to our flesh daily. But not insisting on our own way is a literal expression of crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires because we are putting aside what I want to care and show love to other people. If you're a leadership person, you run a company or you're a CEO or you're a manager that has people underneath you, you're an entrepreneur or something that, uh, some type of business that, um, that has people that you oversee, there's a leadership principle at play here. It's allow others to accomplish the tasks we have given them by not forcing them to do it our way. 
but there's also an eternal principle here that is far greater. Care for others so much that we lay down demanding our own way. Now, there's a little bit of a risk involved here, right? Because loving brings risk. There's a little bit of a risk because when we care for others, there's a very good possibility that people may try to take advantage of it or us. Now, if that happens, it can kind of burn us a little bit, but we should act in wisdom, create proper boundaries for that relationship, but we should continue to find ways to still care for other people. This idea is completely countercultural, right? Because our culture has a, a very famous saying that says, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. They take the posture of, You'll, you can burn me once, but you ain't going to do that again. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to allow you to take advantage of me again. I'm not going to allow you to do this again. But Romans 9, 1 through, 3, 1 through 3, we find Paul has no care for that cultural idea. Listen to what he says. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Man, here I'm looking at my own life and not comparing it to other people, but trying to compare it to Scripture. And I'm looking at what Paul is saying, and I'm thinking, man, do I care for people like that? Is there enough love and care in my heart for others to go, man, if, if it would make a difference that every single person in my city would go to heaven, I would take separation from Christ as the, the payment for that, almost as I, I would be... Gladly to be forever cursed, to cut off from Christ if everybody in this city would wind up with him. I don't know that I love people to that extent. I know that there are probably a handful of people in my life that I would say, man, I would give my life for them. I would, I would do anything for these people, including this. But I guarantee you that it's a very precious view. But do we see the difference between the cultural idea of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, and the heart cry of love that Paul has for the Jewish people to say, I would be willing to be separated from Christ if the entirety of the nation, the, the children of God, the Jewish people would come to know him. Now amplify that love that already kind of cramps my mind to think about it. And now look back at the love of Christ that has that love and acted on it for every single person because he loves and cares for us. Every time we dive into scripture, we're going to find that it causes friction from the culturally accepted norms and ideas to what Jesus is leading us to follow. 
do we love and care for others to the extent that we would endure someone taking advantage of us if it meant they would see the true gospel and become a believer in Christ? I'm not telling you to put yourself in a position where people would constantly run over you and constantly manipulate you or hurt you or wound you. But my, my friend, I'm asking a deeper question. Is there enough love in us as believers and followers of Christ that if someone did take advantage of us, that we could put that to the side and show them the love and care that Christ has shown us as a reflection of Him to the world. That is wildly challenging for me. Wildly challenging. Right before we wrap up, I, I read this story and I, I, I feel like it's appropriate for, for our message here today. <clears throat> it was a story of a nurse who was working at a clinic and an elderly gentleman in his 80s came in for his appointment at 8.30 in the morning. And as he was checking in, he, they asked him what he needed to be seen for. And he had, he had done something to his hand and had stitches in his thumb area and needed to have them removed and the bandage re replaced. As he came in and checked in, he, he told the person at the desk he was in a hurry that he had a 9 o'clock appointment that he did not want to be late for. So could they hurry up and see him? And they asked him to sit down and said they would see what they could do. So the nurse who was... The, the, the receiving nurse checked his vital signs and, and, and knew, she overheard his conversation that he was trying to get out of there quick and she knew that he would be in the waiting room for at least an hour, for at least an hour. And so she just kept, would see him every, every few moments, look over at him and he was looking at his watch, looking at his watch, eagerly trying to, to hope that he would be out of there for his nine o'clock appointment. The nurse that has been watching him and, and saw him kind of felt some compassion and she, she got done with a, a, a patient that she was treating a little early and she thought, you know, I'll just wedge this guy in here real quick. I'll just help him out today. And so she called his name and came to the back and she opened up his, opened up his, um, his bandage and saw his stitches and, and the, the wound had healed properly. And so she got a doctor over and they began to remove the stitches and redressed the wound. The woman said, I, I overheard that you said you, that you had somewhere to be at nine o'clock when you walked in here at 8.30. And she said, sir, do you have another doctor's appointment that you need to be at for something? And he said, no, I have to meet my wife for breakfast. She kind of thought that was sweet and said, oh, well, will she, will she mind if you're a little bit late? And he said, well, um, She's at the nursing home, and I have to go there because they serve her breakfast at 9, and I don't want to miss it. And so the lady began to inquire of him as she was redressing his wound and, and learned that his wife had Alzheimer's and had not been able to remember who her husband was for at least the last three years. She turned and looked at him and said, And you still go... Every morning for breakfast? He said, yes, ma'am, every morning. You still go even though she doesn't know who you are. And the older gentleman grinned and patted the nurse on the hand and says, she doesn't know who I am, but I know who she is. 
I know who she is. And when I read that story, I couldn't think, I couldn't help but think of the scripture, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here we are, lost in our sin, unable to do anything to make ourselves be in right standing with God. Unable to, to do anything to earn, earn our, our grace or earn our salvation or anything. Not even sometimes knowing that we even need a Savior. And here Jesus is constantly, through His Word, through the Gospel through his children, offering something to the world that they don't even yet know they need. This is love and care. What would our marriages, our friendships, our parent-child relationships, our family relationships, our professional relationships, and relationships to people that we don't even know look like if we cared for others with the same love that God gives to us. Matt, I've been burned before. I, I, I've, I've tried to do this. I've tried to give. I've tried to, you know, to, to, to care for other people. And I got hurt from it. I got wounded from it. And I am very sorry that if that was your experience. But several weeks ago, we talked about the difference between the high road and the road of the Most High. And if that person does not know the Lord as their Savior, I'm going to encourage you to, with wisdom and the leading of the Holy Spirit, to try and still care for them in a way that they would not be able to abuse you. I'm not telling us to run foolishly into abuse, but I am saying to push against the culture and say, I can go past the level of being wounded because with someone I was trying to care for, I can go past that point and still care for them because my heart, the love that's growing inside of me, inside of that heart, cares for other people. Why would we even consider any of this? Plain and simple. Because love cares. I don't want us just yet to run out and seek all these other people that we need to find to care for. Because i got to care for all these people. God says i got to care. i got to go care. i got to show care to all these people. Let's just stop just for a second. I want that to happen. Don't get me wrong. I want that to happen. But before we try to run out and find all of these people to care for, let's look at the relationships that Christ has given us right now. Your husband or your wife your children, your parents, your friends, your family, your extended family, your co-workers, the people that are in your sphere of influence right now, let us steward those relationships well and lovingly care for them the way God has shown care for us. Let's not boast. Let's not demand our own way. Let's not fall into the posture of arrogance. Let's make sure 
that everything in our life is pointing people back to the only one who can save. And that is Jesus.